What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another installment in the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Kyle Kimbrell, and just want to jump on here and tell you a bit about where we'll be headed over the next few weeks and different things we got going before we kick it over to the podcast for today. Um, we are finally getting back out there. We've been able to run three open courses now, thankfully. Good grief, man. It's been a long time stuck at home, so it's been nice for a few of us to be able to get out of the house interact with you all and, and, and share some blood flow restriction exercise knowledge and rehabilitation knowledge. If you are interested in catching our courses or learning more from us, as always, you can go to our website, owensrecoveryscience.com. Under the Get Certified tab, you'll find all of our courses, whether they be uh, domestically here in the United States or internationally. And then we also have spots just to learn more for our blog, a place for our podcast on our website. So that can just be where you go to find everything that we're putting out there content-wise. You can catch us on social media as well, of course. We're on just all the typical different channels but our course is coming up soon here august 15th we'll be in golden colorado at our friends next level sports performance and physical therapy then on august 29th we'll be in austin texas as well as london over in the uk so both of those courses on august 29th if you're interested then september 12th we'll be in two spots we'll be in long island we're gonna go we're gonna split the country we're gonna go long island new york and San Diego, California, that's got to be the largest, well, I don't know, I mean, the over across the pond, that might be farther from Austin to London, but we're spreading it out across the U.S. about as much as you can without going up into Alaska, so a couple different spots to catch us on September 12th. Then uh, at the end of September, we're going to close it out with three different courses. We'll be at uh, Andrews Children's Institute in Dallas, Texas on September 26th. That same date will also be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and in Little Rock, Arkansas. So a lot of options for you on September 26th, right at the end of September, if you're looking to find us. And then we'll have a bunch more courses coming up in October. October is going to be a really busy month for us, and I think just generally busy as we're closing out the year. But um, for now, let's turn it over to our buddy Jimmy McKay, and then a special intro after that into today's podcast. So Really hope you enjoy what we've got in store for you. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. We are happy to have with us today one of the more famous experts in the field of BFR. First came onto the scene in March 2017 with his banger, blood flow restriction training and clinical musculoskeletal rehabilitation, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And known for his most recent hit, the effect of BFR resistance training on exercise-induced hypoalgesia. Some refer to him as a doctor of philosophy. Some may even refer to him as the Drake of BFR. We know him as Luke Hughes. Jesus, man. Have you guys ever had such a diva on that, that brings their own intro? Um, that is like, I'm only going to do this if y'all play this intro that my team put together first. I mean, it's, it's just like, uh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a European thing. I'm not sure, but, wow, uh, oh, man, Luke Hughes, the Drake of BFR. <laughs> did, did you guys, did, did y'all get the signed copies of his articles that he, he mailed out? Of the, of the, of the review? Yeah, I, know that I, I, I know I got one in the mail. Did you, you not? You did? Oh. Yeah. Okay. 
Man. I, I, I bought a, I bought one, a counterfeit one. I couldn't afford the actual signed one. So yeah. I, went, I went through one of those, those backend hacking journal sites, you know, to John, find it. Johnny, you have, you have the, just Luke's work on your TV at home, right? Like that's the art instead of the, you know, yeah, instead yeah, of Van Gogh, it's just like Luke Hughes's. My, my wife loves it. <laughs> so if you, if you didn't hear the intro, because, you, you know, people fast forward through the first parts of podcasts, you got to at least listen to that intro because um, Kyle, Kyle had some, some good work. Kyle, do you want to explain yeah. like what shout the out. whole background of that is? For sure. Yeah. Shout out to Brian Goonan uh, from Twitter. I think his handle is at tune into Goonan, but is, is uh, right now is, av- I don't know what you call those things, avatars or whatever, but then whatever mm-hmm. your name is, it'll say hops and squats. So clearly uh, a man after our own heart who likes to squat and drink beer. Um, but he did a, uh, a little talk for like a um, grand rounds talk for HSS. He's up at hospital special surgery in New York. He and a colleague did a, a talk for grand rounds there at HSS and they, uh, he did the intro. And so he did like a little history of BFR and he made some, some hip hop references for uh, Dr. Sato and Jeremy Linicky. Uh, Johnny was Jay Z, I believe. Is that right? Word, word, baby. I got the best <laughs> one. Hova, <laughs> and then uh, and then Luke right. was was Drake, and you know Luke has had a, a little maybe maybe too much early success in his career. We had to had to bring him down a notch or two. So so I think I think mine. I, I didn't see it, but it said mine was a. Uh, I'm, I'm like Jay Z because I spread I spread the BFR or something. Uh, yeah, I and, think that's what it was. And, like you and, and Drake is Luke is Drake because now he's everywhere. So, uh, like Drake. So, so that's who we got on today, man. Luke Hughes, he's everywhere in the BFR world right now. I can't keep up with him, you know. Knew him when he was a young gun, and now he's like, he's now he's gunning for all of us. Um, Luke, what's your favorite Drake song, man? Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Um, and thanks for putting my intro together. <laughs> um, Drake, I actually couldn't name a single Drake song. Oh, come but, on, man. Well, that's... appreciate that from those guys, but. Saying I'm everywhere makes me sound like COVID. That's not a good look. Yeah. No, yeah, that's true. Well, if, and check if y'all want um, to check out the best look we have on our on our social media handles. We got um, we put out with with Luke Hughes a picture of him to ask him any questions. So um, that was a that was a a nice shot that Kyle was able to round up as well, man. So no, all joking aside, man. Luke, we've known each other for a long time, and then you want to give a little background of. Um, kind of how you got started into academia and, and all that sort of stuff. And we'll put out there, you're over in London um, in the United Kingdom, which is as COVID hot as we are in the, in the USA right now. Yeah. Well, first of all, before, before I do that, we're going to have to retract the part about the signed BFR papers. I didn't send one to Zach, so he's going to feel pretty left out when we, oh, when we, man. Yeah. And he's um, a sniper. You better watch out. Exactly. I have to vote. <laughs> Um, yeah, so thanks for having me on. I am um, basically um, over, based over here in the UK. I uh, was up in the East Midlands for my undergraduate and postgraduate studies doing sports science and exercise physiology. Um, and then took an interest in BFR just from, from reading around it. Um, and then searched for PhDs and there was one going with Stephen Patterson down in London. Um, so I moved down here and to do my PhD. And the whole general idea at the beginning of the PhD was using BFR as a clinical tool. So that was kind of the title. It was kind of a broad topic. Um, so we had to come up with um, a, an idea for a clinical study as part of the interview and present it. Um, and the actual study was, was an ACL one, um, which we ended up following up with. So 
The PhD was based at St. Mary's University here in London uh, in collaboration with University College London Hospital, which is one of the NHS hospitals, one of the biggest in the UK. So the idea was that um, we would get an honorary researcher position for myself there, which would enable me to do BFR um, research with the patients there. Um, we had two options, kind of ACL or ankle fractures. Um, we decided to go with the ACL. And just for me, it was a more interesting um, musculoskeletal injury uh, and disease than, than uh, knee away. Uh, and also we had the ankle fracture patients. We, we envisaged a lot of limitations with, with doing that. With the ACL, we could kind of recruit them pre-surgery and do all the things we wanted to do. So we kind of set out, we started by basically looking at the BFR methodology. So what was kind of um, the most appropriate way to apply it from like a safety perspective, but also an effectiveness. Primarily because in a PhD, it's good to show progression and, and logical thinking how you've built your methodology. And um, also for me, I wanted to be confident that we were using uh, a BFR tool that was the most safe and effective because it was the first kind of its study in the NHS. So we wanted to kind of make sure we really nailed down and uh, the safety of it. So initially in the PhD, we began by looking at different types of BFR devices uh, and actually what was happening with pressure between the cuff and the limb during BFR exercise and how that impacted on things like the perceptual response, the hemodynamic response. So we set out doing that. And once we determined um, uh, the best kind of device to use, we started then looking at how we prescribe um, BFR most effectively. So I'm sure everyone who's listening is aware from your guys' previous podcast and work that measuring limb occlusion pressure is the best way to, um, to prescribe BFR pressure. So we did a study where we looked at the effect of body position um, on LOP. So just comparing uh, LOP in a, in a supine and upright and a standing position. And that came about from the previous study where we were measuring LOP uh, with individual supine and we were doing it with a handheld Doppler and I thought I'd hit LOP and we'd lost the signal. And then the guy was being really nosy and kind of sat up to look at what I was doing. And there was this rush of blood throw through again. So we were like, oh, hang on. <laughs> that's kind of, yeah, not, not about science. that's the rationale of the study, but we tried to make it sound a little bit more scientific when we wrote that paper. Um, and then after that, we kind of dove in with the ACL stuff. So um, we did a pilot test with, with one patient, um, kind of with no issues, and we kind of refined the protocol, and then we went straight in. So we began by looking at the acute responses. So um, after surgery, um, three weeks after surgery, when we did a first acute session of BFR or heavy load, kind of what was the, what was the acute response so in terms of pain, RPE, um, swelling, all these different things, just to see is it going to be feasible to do. Um, and then we followed that up with, with a training study. So it was an eight week training study and it was a criteria based progression. So we recruited the patients um, did all our measures pre-surgery. Uh, they had their surgery. And then two weeks after surgery, we started assessing them for certain criteria that allowed us to start loading them. Once they hit that, we repeated the test and then train them for eight weeks. So that was a really cool study because it was a, I think like the third ever um, BFR ACL trial. Um, and yeah. then, in the NHS so it was really good and we were comparing directly to heavy loading so we kind of we kind of skimmed over the low intensity exercise versus low intensity with BFR because we know it works so we were like you know how does it compare to heavy loading and at the time at UCL their protocol was to use heavy loading so they started loading them heavy straight away so and it was like 70% 1RM heavy as well so a good load and um, so we just compared it directly against that and included a lot of strength measures a load of morphology measures and a lot of function, pain and spine stuff. Um, so there was that aspect of it. And then we also had a feasibility aspect of it, which we figured was important for, you know, informing future studies. Um, so looking at things like the perceptual responses all the way through the training and looking at, you know, how feasible was it? 
Um, and that kind of, one of the kind of um, side findings from that was the pain related stuff, which we've now followed up with, with more recent studies and, and kind of tried to dig into that and find out, you know, some mechanisms uh, behind them. Yeah, I think so, right now, if we're to look at kind of like where where is Luke Hughes in this BFR universe, it's definitely kind of setting a, a standard with ACL and now the, the pain guy. Because um, even though that was the third ACL study, that was the first good BFR ACL study. <laughs> you. I, you know, um, that we can actually look at it from a standardized approach. Like you said, it, it also set up for a lot of other studies from what we understand from perceptual responses, the hemodynamic responses, um, and then all the way down to the end of like, now we got all these objective measures. So I think that one set the tone um, early on of like, this is good um, ACL work. Actually, we just got funded for a new one in the DOD and um, uh, I'm already using some of your design from that. The criterion approach is so much better to start off with rather than everyone starts at two weeks because not everyone's the same at two weeks. So everyone I've been talking when like, how are you going to start? You know, how, how do you know the rate to start? It's like, well, we, let's start with a criteria based approach for these rehab type studies. You, you really have to because objectively when they're all the same is when you need to start not from a time point. So good yeah, on you, yeah. man. A good way to do that. I think um, for me, that with with a PhD, like a, I'm not a clinician by 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 trade from undergraduate and postgraduate stuff. So there was a lot for me to learn from from the physios and and, and the surgeons um, at the hospital. Um, yeah. And one of my supervisors was a, a MSK physiotherapist there, and like doing that criteria driven approach was great because there was just there was quite a big disparity in some individuals. I think it worked out that there was like on average one day difference between the groups for when they could start the intervention. Um, yeah. we were all capable of, of doing a session by the time we put them on there. So it was definitely a better approach. I think looking back on it, it probably influenced the low dropout rates and the high adherence rates to our, to our protocol after. And an easy study design, you know, that's, that's another thing. So many of these studies are like, okay, after one week, we switched to five different exercises. And then the week three, we switched to five different exercises. Can you, can you talk about your study design of if someone was like, well, I want to mimic Dr. Hughes's study, how would I do that in the clinical setting? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the key factors that kind of shaped um, the planning of the study and design was was the fact that it was the first kind in the NHS. So um, NHS ethics can they're notoriously thorough, and there was only so many things we could change uh, with it being the first study within that. So um, we used a uh, we used an RCT and, and randomized it. Um, and we, I really wanted to blind it because, you know, those kind of trials are so much more robust if, if I'm doing all the measures using what group. So um, we managed to convince UCL to let us have some master students to come on board and, and run the train sessions. And, and they're on the sport and exercise medicine master's degree. So they were all trained clinicians. So that was really helpful to, ha to have for me, knowing that there's clinicians with the patients train them. Then also the fact that I could be blinded. Um, good for the measures. In terms of the the design itself. So we kind of I spent a bit of time initially just um, assessing the kind of learning about the normal ACL rehab protocol at, at UCL. And one thing I learned quickly is that there's such disparity in ACL rehab protocols uh, around the world. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, hang on, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I fit and modify this? So just started going to um, the rehab stuff. And, and at the time, what they were doing is um, starting a two weeks post-surgery they would do some assessments and then they would eventually about five or six weeks later start 
getting patients into uh, rehab classes where they'd have six or seven patients uh, and then they'd all do like a circuit of rehab uh, and they typically were just doing one strength exercise. So, which obviously is, isn't, isn't quite a lot and I wish we could have done more. So we just went with a single um, exercise initially um, and kind of that, that kind of shaped the whole of the intervention really. We knew we could only do one exercise and realistically we could only really get our patients in twice a week. You know, I'd have loved to have had them in three, four times a week, but, but unfortunately we, we couldn't do that. Turns out, much every every clinical study right now is twice a week. I, I, that's the yeah. standard. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, I was quite happy with that and happy to to, to justify that in, in the thesis because you look at Brendan Scott's review and you know two to three sessions a week is effective for improving yeah. muscles and mass, and that was they were our main our main uh, outcome measures. So um, so yeah, it was, and I think the key thing with those studies is like just the pilot. We put one patient through it initially, and there were so many things we changed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. the methodology what it was for the paper because we, we changed so much based on just the feasibility of what we wanted to do. Yeah. And, and what's good about this, which we don't get a lot of our clinical studies, like over here in the States, we're not told you need to do 70% 1RM from the get-go with an ACL. Um, and so your comparison being in BFR at, at a low load compared to a 70% 1RM was, was pretty cool to see how, how that all teased out. Yeah, I think um, usually what, what they were doing there um, is just they were kind of getting patients in and just, just loading them as heavy as possible. They, they weren't doing any, like an official one around measurement, if you like, because um, their rationale was that it's so soon post-surgery, they were worried about putting them on on the leg press and doing that kind of training. And also, uh, to do that kind of testing, the physios like, didn't have time. They had six or seven mm-hmm. patients that still have time to do that. Um, so what we did was we took them out for testing and just proposed doing a, a 10RM and kind of working backwards from that is it more feasible patients were more doing it um and we just essentially the, the rehab programs they followed stayed the same so any of like the proprioceptive stuff flexibility stuff they did they did that as part of the class we just took them out for the strength work so we just took them out for 10 minutes and then put them back in so kind of that was really the only element we changed can you explain how you do a 10 rm because we get interested all the time like hey how do i figure out what this person's 30 percent rep max is post-surgical. So what's your, when you guys were measuring that, what was your methodology? So we, when we did the 10 RM, um, so we were doing unilateral leg press. So we were, we were training both limbs, but individually. And um, so we measured it for, for both limbs to uh, prescribe load relative to that. And um, so we basically um, started like predicting what their um, uh, 70% 1 RM would be typically. Um, and then we started them off in what we thought would be five attempts away from that with like five kg increments. So we just get them on the leg press, do a bit of a standard warm up, and then do an attempt. And our criteria was that they could lift the weight through full range, some zero to 90 degree range of motion and, and control the movement. Uh, and then we just kept uh, going up in increments until we hit the 10 RM. So when we picked the 10 RM, it was for, for a feasibility perspective and for it to be a bit safer and, and for the patients to feel more comfortable. A 10 RM typically equates to around about 70% of one RM. So that was pretty handy for setting the load with the, with a heavy load training group. But yeah. we essentially some, some equations that were, they were old school sports science papers. I think it was <laughs> so when you, I think I was seven when this, when this, when this study was, was put out and essentially what you can do is plug, plug in the weight they've lifted, the amount of reps they've done and a few of the things into an equation and it will give you their predicted um, one around and, and we kind of work backwards from that. So um, yeah, that's kind of how we did that. I think the five RM approach. You guys, you guys did that in the in the neat arthroscopy paper. The five yeah. RM as well. 
Yeah, that's what we did. But 10RM gives you a lot more wiggle room. There was just some validity issues that some of our folks were concerned with. Um, and, and the docs were a little nervous too. So we, we did a 5RM. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you blew up and became Mr. ACL after this, right? So um, you've got a book chapter that I, I was part of with you on ACL rehab. You've got, you, what, three papers out of this study? Um, uh, yeah, huge study in training study in a feasibility. Yeah, feasibility yeah. paper. Out of yeah. And then um, I tried to figure out how we first like met. And so I already knew Stephen prior to, to meeting you. So I, I pulled up old emails. And so we first started talking in 2016. Um, wow. And so, yeah, it's crazy, right? Time flies. Um, and so you were reaching out to me about a feasibility study on trying to figure out what's the best kind of cuff to use and, and how can you validate it. Um, and that's when you explained kind of what your study design idea was for ACL. And I was like, oh, man, I like this, man. This is nice. So then that's, I came back to you and asked if you would write the ACL section of our techniques in orthopedics special, um, special section. So another freaking ACL one. So then you took off as Mr. ACL guy after that. So uh, it's been a while. So let's go, I guess let's wrap up this study from what you found. I, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but in, at the end, you know, kind of heavy hitters, the differences of lifting heavy or lifting light with BFR from your NHS study. Um, what, what, what was the outcomes? Yeah, so a number of interesting outcomes, actually. So we'll, we'll go, try and go through it in a logical order. So we, we, our main outcome measures were muscle strength and, and muscle size. So um, we had a 10RM as our strength measurement. Uh, for our isotonic measurement and essentially we found that both groups significantly improved over the eight weeks with, with no difference um, and kind of was kind of hoping for that and expecting that because based on some of the literature that was published before that studies were starting to show especially those individualized and pressure were starting to show comparable adaptations in, in clinical or injured populations so we had comparable improvements in strength uh, isotonic strength when we looked at our muscle morphology methods, so we had um, muscle thickness and pination angle of the vastus lateralis. So that was the, the muscle we picked. And for, we picked it because it's one of the muscles that atrophies the most uh, in the knee extensors, but also it was really easy to measure via ultrasound. So it was quicker for me to do that. Um, so essentially we found um, muscle thickness and pination angle increased. So that you know, as a, a marker of hypertrophy. And again, that was similar between uh, the groups which is kind of what we hypothesized and expected. The interesting thing was then we looked at our, our physical function um, outcomes. So we had five different self-report questionnaires for our subjective measures. And we also included some objective measures. Now, there wasn't a great deal of studies before that had included objective measures of function. And, and while I think the subjective stuff obviously is really, really important, I kind of like to see it alongside an objective measure, um, just because I think it, it was a, it's a more of a true reflection of what's actually a change and what's happened. Um, so we had our five different um, self-report questionnaires and um, all of the, um, the BFI group reported better improvements in function um, in all five of the questionnaires. So, um, and bear in mind, at the point where I'm analyzing this, I just know them as group zero and group one. So yeah. I'm, at this point, I'm thinking, please God, let this be. <laughs> We've all been there, man. <laughs> this will be an amazing finding. So um, yeah. that was good. And then, for our objective measure, we had the, the Y balance test. So we were looking at reach distance in the um, anterior direction, postural lateral and postural medial. And again, we found that the BFR uh, individuals um, improved 
a great, greater reach distance in all three of those directions. So, you know, they were saying they felt like their function improved better. They were self-reporting that, but actually when we objectively looked at it, it was better. Um, so that was, that was brilliant. And I thought, this, you know, this is amazing. And kind of then I was thinking, well, why is that happened? Because if, if strength's gone up the same and muscle mass has increased, so size has increased, why is function better? Um, I think probably the most interesting part for me was when we looked at the pain and the swelling data. So we measured um, pain using the Coos subscale. Uh, and then we'd also, we measured swelling as mid patella um, joint circumference with a tape measure. And essentially we found that um, there's a greater decrease in pain. So it was, it was 67% in the BFR group reduction versus 39 in the heavy load group. Uh, and then there was a 6% reduction in swelling with BFR group as opposed to a 2% reduction in heavy load. Um, and then when we measured range of motion, uh, the improvement was greater in the BFR group again. So, you know, we figured that less pain, less swelling contributed to greater range of motion in that knee joint, which probably resulted in greater performance in the, in the reach test. Um, yeah. limb is, is the stance then, um, which then translated into them self-reporting better function. So that, those were kind of kind of the outcomes from that. Um, so that was, that all tied in really, really nicely. And I think it really captures, you know, how all the effects of BFR, not just muscle mass and strength, which was kind of the, the old focus of BFR, showing that we can have, we can actually really have beneficial improvements in function. Yeah, that's kind of what we've always said, you know, if you're using this in the early acute stages where you probably should not be putting too much load um, to pit that, you know, might piss the knee off, this is where BFR is, is it's in its wheelhouse. And then once you're done after that eight week intervention or so, that's when it's time to move on. And now it's started getting into the heavy load phase and kind of transition into kind of more uh, higher end active type of things, but you don't have a pissed off knee. So they're already feeling more confident. You know, it sounds like from self-reported they're functionally objectively showing you that um, and, and strength and hypertrophy was really equal between groups. So it's beautiful, yeah. man. Everything you wanted, you got out of it. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. And, you know, looking back on it, I suppose it's easy to do this. And um, a lot of this, there was a lot of focus on this in my PhD Viva with the external examiner because he's a, an ACL expert. So he was kind of talking about like kinesophobia and all these other measures that I kind of didn't do. And, you know, using TMS to measure atherogenic inhibition, all these other things. So I think there's, there's still so many unanswered questions. And, and in hindsight, really, for me, like starting a three weeks post, which I think it was, it was approximately about 21 days post, you know, I think that's too late, really, to start using BFR. There's, you know, we yeah. know there's the swelling, there's the BFR and electrical stimulation. So there's BFR and aerobic exercise. So I think hopefully it paves the way for people to go, actually, yeah, we, we can start early. And there was no safety issues with this. So, um, you know, the, the positive findings we got would be even better uh, maximized with, with earlier interventions. Yeah, it definitely made for a great paper to share with folks. You know, if they're asking for a, a good resource for, for clinical application post-ACL, I mean, having something standardized, you know, Objectify, 1RM, people are typically in a busy clinic space and they're like, all right, well, I don't know that I can do the whole treatment session and get, you know, three to five exercises with BFR. So how do I really utilize this clinically? And it's like, well, it looks like if you can do one multi-joint exercise twice a week for eight weeks, that's pretty darn effective if the you know load is, is prescribed well and also you know if you meet all the reps for a couple sessions you bump the load by 10 percent after four weeks you retested one rep max or 10 rep max and then progress the load from there so um, gave gave some really good basis for how do we how do we utilize this in a clinic space 
And, and it's getting better now where people aren't having a justified BFR. Although I, I still probably get an email every other day from someone, you know, like, my, will you talk to my surgeon or whatever? And so um, I think what's beautiful on this paper is it's nice to have NHS worked into the title. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, it's a RCT blinded with done through a, a uni um, with NHS and Dr. Haddad is on it. Um, who's really thought of, you know, he's, he's kind of one of those orthopedic guru gods over there in, in Europe um, that a lot of the U.S. doctors know, and, and I know a lot of doctors around the world know. So those are nice kind of like, this is a study to share with your doctors. Yeah, I think um, we, had, we had four surgeons. So Haddad is one of them. Uh, and then we had three of the other surgeons working underneath him who were on board for the study. Um, kind of when we initially started, and he was kind of part of, a, a part of the supervisory team. And he was like my line manager for my research position there. Um, just went with him and, and pitched the idea and worked with it. And then it was like, okay, approach the surgeons and ask them. And they were, they were, they were really actually, I was surprised they were really keen to do it. And um, they just said, show us some safety stuff from previous work, any other ACL stuff. And they were like, what's your, what's your risk assessment with your safety measures? And they're like, yeah, okay, go for it. Um, and just let us know. And, and now, you know, I, I've left there now, but, you know, I have a couple of friends who are clinicians around London and, and who helped out with the study as, as MSc students at the time and we became friends and, and the surgeons there still refer patients uh, on for BFR to these other individuals. So, and they've been doing another uh, another study in, in the ankle fracture. So the ethics we had during the PhD, we didn't pick up that study in the end, um, but that's, that's kind of been ongoing. Um, so, you know, I think there, by, by the time we was finishing the PhD, a lot of the physios were, approaching and saying can you can you come and have a chat we, we want to integrate this in, in kind of our practice and standard of practice to offer it to everyone so i really think yeah. that's that was kind of the the most positive finding really that the fact that people really want really like kind of believed in it because as you said there's a lot of apprehension especially in in hospitals sometimes about it yeah well especially in europe you know you're not seeing it nearly as much as we are in the u.s so this is like a real trailblazer I was real curious about that too, Luke, if it, if it did kind of change practice patterns to a degree, um, just based on, on how well it went. So that's kind of, that's cool to hear, you know, that, that it, it seems to at least in a small subgroup of people have, have changed that. Um, something been kind of just brushed on, you know, one of the things we've discussed here before about your study that, that I thought was interesting and also I think informative for, for people that listen to our podcast is, is you had a criteria to progress the load during, but, but then there was also that point at four weeks into the session where you remeasured Tenarium. You actually physically had them do the test and you prescribed load based on that finding, you know, and in, and in both the heavy load and, and the light load BFR group, that load went up somewhat substantially. Um, even though people had been being progressed by, by a certain criteria and, and you saw it in their, their perception of the intervention that day and that sort of thing. So I thought that, that, you know, again, there's a lot of people more and more I hear in our field really pushing, like you really, you have to test, you've got to test this movement. You've got to put this person under some load and have them do it. Um, and you guys really kind of showed it, I felt like, in that study. So that was that was cool to see. Was that something that, that surprised you all or was that kind of expected? What what did you think? Um, so, so the kind of the rationale for that came from from the systematic review and meta-analysis because that was the first thing we did when we set out because I, that's the best way to kind of say, right, all the BFR clinical studies that are here so far, 
yes, we want to look at the effect size for what's happening to muscle strength with that comparison. So BFR versus low load, does it improve strength more? BFR versus heavy load, does it, you know, what's the difference? But then also that the, the systematic review part, so looking at studies, what measures they use, how do they prescribe pressure? And one of the key factors in the tool we used to assess the quality was do they prescribe load? And I was actually really surprised how many of the studies hadn't progressed load. And some of them were like eight weeks, some of them were 12 weeks, and they hadn't progressed load. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, if you're training three times a week, you're getting stronger. So we wanted to make sure we did that. And we figured, okay, eight-week training intervention, like a, a formal, if you like, retesting of load of four weeks. Um, but even then, I thought twice a week, they're going to get stronger. So we, we, we kind of came up with an idea of how to progress it. And we, we went with if they completed all repetitions, so the 75 rep protocol, um, common with BFR, so the 30, 15, 15, 15, we said if they hit all those reps on two subsequent sessions, we put the load up by 10%. And when we discussed this in my PhD team, you know, kind of one of the issues that was brought up or on the supervisors was, you know, they may end up doing completely different volumes of, uh, of work. Um, so kind of, you know, this could be something that could crop up in, in, in publication review or in your Viva. And I was like, okay, well, we can just deal with that when we get to that. Cause for me, that's, it's clinically relevant anyway. Um, so, um, and it turns out that actually, I think there wasn't a huge, a massive amount of difference in, in the actual amount of load increased relative to what their strength was at the time. Um, but that was really good. And when we look at like the amount of reps done per session, you know, whenever we up, up, the, up the weight, the reps went down and then you, we were, they were hitting failure earlier and then it crept back up and then it came down again. And, and as you said, it's reflected in kind of the RPE. And when we did the formal reassessment, I remember I looked at that data for RPE and it was like kind of it stayed quite consistent throughout. And then it was a huge jump after week eight. And I thought, where has that come from? And I went back to all the paper and thought I wrote it down wrong and then realized it was because the load had gone up um, from the, from the retesting. So I think yeah. the key thing being the feasibility, like you know, we showed you can do it. You don't have to do formal retesting every week to, to progress the load uh, and, and the patient. And people, I mean, post-op after an ACL, that, that number, it can be changing really fast in, in a clinic type setting because the knees settling down, hopefully um, people are feeling better and more confident that really can change the amount of load someone can allow to cross, cross that joint. So, you know, having that criteria in a clinical study, I think is just extremely important um, and, and really smarty also. Yeah, I guess I'm saying kudos, Drake. That's all I'm saying. Way, way to go, Drake. <laughs> way to no. go, Drake. <laughs> the key thing too is it's time, you know, it's always like when we're setting up studies, it's like clinical burden, oh, clinical burden, you're putting too much clinical burden. But if you're reassessing it at the halfway point, it works. And it's, that's not a clinical burden by any means. You can, you can have one day out of that four weeks where you're retesting RMs, um, which is yeah. beautiful. Cause yeah, I, I think we all think, well, we're just increasing load each time. So obviously we're, we're on track here, but I, we always undershoot in rehab. We're learning <laughs> big time. Yeah. I don't care. It was just kind of having the, you know, looking back on it, um, one of the things I kind of would do in future studies, if we do the same thing again, would be to the post-op testing to repeat it maybe two days later before we prescribe load. Because I always wonder how many of those patients might have pushed more two days later because of like, I don't know, like a bit of a kinesiophobia thing, you know, were they afraid getting on it for the first time post-surgery? Again, this is something that came up in, the, in, the, in my viva. You know, should, should studies potentially reassess two days later? Is that more of a true reflection of strength? Yeah. Potentially. The counter argument from, from, from our study was that, we, you know, we, we tested them pre-surgery. So, like, they were familiar with the protocol. They've been, they've been on the leg press. So, you know, we hopefully we minimize any chance of that happening. But, but obviously, you know, these are all things in an ideal world. And as you said, there's lots of restraints clinically. Um, yeah. But load shouldn't be one of them. 
And so getting a little bit more into the specifics and you used 80% LOP? 80% LOP, yeah. Everyone started at 80% or you built up or? So we went straight in with 80% uh, LOP, yeah. So yeah. Uh, um, and then I think what we found was that um, looking back on the data after, um, after the unblinding was that a lot of the earlier sessions in the BFI group, they weren't doing many reps at all. Like everyone got the first 30. Then maybe like, you know, half the individuals got the second 15 and then nothing in the third set. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of individuals did the 30 and then they did two after that and then you know, they couldn't do any more. And, you know, it might have been more to do with pressure. Um, in hindsight, probably best clinical practice probably would be to maybe reduce it down a little bit and, and, and get more volume from the purpose. I, with my PhD hat on, I was thinking, well, we don't want to fluctuate the pressure too much because then there could be a lot of differences in the stimulus everyone's receiving. And actually what we found was that, you know, by, by the second, by the third session, everyone was, was, was fine with it. So yeah. I, I kind of, I'm a firm believer in just, you know, getting people through it and getting them familiar to it. That's a, so I think that's key. We just had a big call for the femur fracture trial and that, you know, we started 80 um, and we'll allow it if, if they can't get into like set two, um, or complete set two, they can go down to 70. Um, if they're still having trouble, they go to, they can go to 60 and then it stops. Um, we, you know, then they just, we deflate. Um, but the, the key point too is almost after one or two sessions, that's never an issue again. It's, it's just the, you know, and it's, it's that thing. We can't predict when someone's gonna have a femur fracture, but it's almost like, I wish we could have attenuated these people to this prior to the study, you know, a prehab, you know, have them do it a, a day or two pre-surgical just to understand, you know, this is what it's going to be. And we might not run into that. But again, most people who might be nervous, they can't handle it because we just onboarded two new sites. And that was the biggest question. Uh, what if, I don't know if they can handle that pressure because they've already been doing BFR there. And it's like, they'll, they'll be fine. <laughs> just get them through the first two sessions. It, it's okay. So with, with that, then going back from you know, like when we first met, one of the questions you had was you were doing the validation study. Do you want to go in a little bit of like what you were looking at and, and what, what you're trying to validate and how you came to your decision of what to do? Yeah, sure. So that's just, just reminding me when you spoke, when you mentioned about how we met, I think it was Twitter. I think I reached out to you on Twitter. Um, you know, just like Kyle, he stalks hey, me. Same. You know. Same. Ben, ben lives in my media. city, so Ben lives in the city, so he just wouldn't leave me alone. I'd open my door, he'd be standing in my driveway, like, "Hey, Johnny." <laughs> I, I was just hanging out in Johnny's bushes, just waiting for him to come outside. I mean, you guys, you went the social media route. That's Twitter. that's just really weird that you did that. How do we meet on social? What do you remember, Luke? Just Pardon? general. I think I um, message you, uh, direct message you. Uh, obviously, like Jay Z has a lot of followers, so I'm surprised I got through the net. But, yeah. Uh, that's the said we had an idea for a study and, and do you mind chatting via email and then and you pop the email and that's when i said to you what, what our proposal was but essentially what we wanted to do was uh, it's more, more more so now but especially when i was starting out in 2016 you know, there was already a few different bfr devices um out there um and at st mary's university stephen um because he'd done blood flow restriction for his phd uh, so he had uh, we had a Hawkinson device, like the medical, uh, the big, huge cup that goes from like the groin yeah. down to the... Yeah, that's what we started with. Yeah. The game-ready compression thing, it just covers the limb. <laughs> well, we had one of those, and then we had some of the old-style Delphi cuffs that Stephen had got um, from them a couple of years before. Um, so, and then 
there was the occlusion cuff was out at the time. People were using handheld blood pressure cuffs. Wraps were being used. So I was kind of like, hang on, before we before we do this clinical study, um, surely we should have a you know look at you know competitive devices. Um, and you know, kind of the key thing was this is kind of a BFR is supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z. So like, what factors could influence that per device? Um, so we kind of sat back and I was having to think about you know what's what could be the most important thing and, and pressure being one of them. Um, so we decided to look at um, the pressure regulation. So one thing that kind of struck me was that people were setting pressures and a lot of them were arbitrary at the time and saying, okay, we're, we're applying 220 millimeters of mercury in the cuff. And I'm like, well, how, how do we know that's what's happening in the limb? And the cuffs might be three centimeters thick, you know, it'll be one centimeter thick. What's actually happening? Um, so we decided to um, come up with other ways to try and measure that. So we, we kind of developed this um, pressure sensor that is this kind of a um, bit of a, not homemade, but we kind of put all these different systems together. Like we use some Pascal kit. Um, and that's why I kind of approached you with and said, what do you think? And then you put me in touch with Jim and, and the others at, at Delphi, um, who obviously have a lot more experience with this kind of work, this biomedical engineering stuff. And, and they helped uh, you know, give me some advice on that. And essentially we, we just did an acute BFR session. Um, and so we did a 75 rep protocol, unilateral leg press exercise, 30% more rep max. Uh, and we just put the sensors circumferentially um, around the limb underneath the cuff. So obviously the cuffs were all, all different widths. So the first thing we did was when we put the cuff on as proximal as possible, we just marked the proximal and distal edges, took it off, measured the distance, work out the midpoint of the cuff, drew that around the limb, and then we basically divided it equally. So measured the circumference, divided it equally. So we had a sensor, anterior, posterior, medial, uh, lateral and put the sensors on, put the cuff back over in line with the markings. Uh, and then we, we cracked on with our measurements. So we did some some resting measurements, which we can come back to in a moment, but the exercise stuff was really interesting. So we compared three different types of, of BFR devices. So we had the Hulkinson rapid inflation. So those guys are like filled with the compressed air from this big tank and they, they inflate to full pressure in like half a second. So they're quite aggressive. So we had one of those. Um, and then we had a um, like a handheld uh, type pump, the ones that have like, the pressure gauge, and a handheld bulb, and you pump those up. Uh, and then we had an automatic unit, um, so the Delphi unit, which is designed to automatically regulate, um, so a surgical type tourniquet. Um, so essentially what we did is we did a continuous um, pressure measurement um, through our exercise, and we had the cuffs modified. So we had a, a separate line inserted into the cuff bladder within each cuff. So we could actually monitor, A, the pressure we set at, so we know what we set them at, and we prescribed it as, say, 80% LLP. Uh, the B, we had the measure of what's happening inside the cuff, in the cuff bladder, so what's the actual pressure in there. And then C, we had the measure between the cuff and the limb. So what that allowed us to do is record the pressure changes between the cuff and the limb and look at how that compared to what was in the cuff bladder. So we'd expect if we set the pressure, say 150 millimeters of mercury at 80% LLP, we'd expect the cuff bladder to be have 150 millimeters of mercury of air in it. And then we could see what was happening between the cuff and the limb. Um, and interestingly, so when we were doing the study, I could see the visual traces and I could see all these jumps around with, with certain different types of cuff. And I thought, oh great, well, there's something happened there. That's, that's pretty interesting. Essentially what I did was averaged um, the fluctuations. So we had fluctuations above and below the set pressure as we'd expect with different types of- Yeah, yeah, as you're moving. Yeah, so we, we kind of averaged that and then just compared. So we used like a Bland-Altman test and just compared um, the differences. And essentially what we found is that the, the kind of the manual handheld type cuff, so you, like your standard blood pressure cuffs you pump up, 
they were just they were awful at um, regulating pressure, um, which is unsurprising really because they're not designed to do that. So um, what we're finding is that when the cuffs on the limb and and the person was concentrically contracting that muscle, it was getting shorter and fatter at the muscle belly, and it was pushing against the cuff. And because the cuff isn't designed to to deflate and regulate pressure, there's a big increase in interface pressure. So so for me, that's as good as the cuff applying more pressure than it should be because that tissue is still experiencing right. more pressure. Right. Um, I think on average, the difference was around 75 millimeters of mercury, if I remember correctly, uh, on average across the exercise bout. So, you know, say they were 150 millimeters of mercury, 80% LP, that's half. So that's, that's a big difference in pressure. And yeah. what we found alongside that, so again, to try and inform the feasibility, because we, we tried to make the perceptual responses and the feasibility of doing this in patients a big you know, trend through the PhD. Um, so we looked at the perceptual responses and we found that in that cuff, individuals were reporting higher pain, higher RPE. And we actually found that the hemodynamic response was, was different. So um, that was that cuff. And then when we looked at the, the Hawkinson and the Delphi surgical tourniquet, now these systems are designed to control pressure. And so what we found was that the pressure fluctuations were much more minimal um, controlled. And then alongside that patients or the individuals, they weren't patients at this point, but the individuals reported um, less pain, lower RPE. So, you know, and, and it kind of makes sense, you know, le less fluctuations of pressure, um, less pain, less discomfort. So that was kind of a really good starting point because it was very, very obvious which type of BFR device we, we were going to use. And, you know, I, I would only use that kind of surgical type automatic regulating device in, in patients for that reason. Right. Yeah, it goes along with the surgical literature and some of that stuff's been done, but but definitely your study took it to a whole different level. It was, it was interesting to see. And you can just watch this big manometer on these little pump-up things. It's like all over the place. Um, so it's it's visually, you see that like, whoa, that, that thing went all the way to the end. I bet if it went to 800, it would have gone all the way around. And then, um, but then it's got that drift. So you can't even regulate and hold the pressure. Um, yeah. That's That was our problem when we were first kind of messing around with in the DOD. I mean, those things, after a while, it was just like, and that's, that's what they're designed to do um, is just to basically lose their, their air over time. Uh, yeah. So. We, we included some resting measures and it's, it's kind of whenever I've been asked about the paper, people always focus on the exercise component and I get that, but the, we had some resting measures and we measured basically just um, a 30 second inflation period with the sensors on um, just passive, like it was passive BFR, I suppose. Uh, and we did mm -hmm. it at 40% LOP and 80% LOP. And essentially we found that like the, the manual handheld type cuffs couldn't maintain the pressure. So we could see it visually on the trace. It was just the interface pressure was decreasing. And actually the cuff bladder pressure was also like decreasing as well. So it was kind yeah. of like this, this, this drift. So, you know, I think that has important implications for, for passive cell swelling protocols because, you know, by the time you're on the third or fourth cycle, what actual pressure you're applying to, to that limb. Yeah. Or even during exercise, you know, it's going to be doing the same drift as well um, yeah. as, as it does in the passive or static. So um, then I guess let's roll from there to when you started getting more interested in this, the whole pain, the analgesic effect, because really no one um, has put out a paper or study just addressing that um, with BFR. You know, Chris Bradner did some kind of perceptual stuff and, and, and things like that, but what, what was your thoughts on that? And, and what were you thinking when you started want to go down that wormhole? Yeah. So it kind of, it kind of happened uh, unexpectedly. So I think when we, when we designed the ACL study, there were papers out uh, at this time that had looked at kind of pain. So you had your, you had the um, Neil Way study by Frazitel, a 217 paper looked at pain. Uh, we had the anterior knee pain with Giles et al. 
So um, they kind of started reporting with a training study reduced pain in the BFR group compared to either a low intensity group or a high intensity group. And in our ACL stuff, so our first kind of the acute study, um, we basically, we measured pain during the exercise and 24 hours after. Um, and 24 hours after, we just kind of, I think we just, I think we just kind of threw that measure in there, to be honest. I don't think there was <laughs> a rationale for that. We kind of just went, let's, let's see what's happening the day after. Um, How'd you do and, that? Did you call the subjects or? Yeah, called them the day after. Yeah. So okay. called them. Yeah. So I was kind of, I was cold calling these patients. They were probably sleeping by the end of the study. <laughs> <laughs> They're all blocky, block, block, block that number. Hey, hey, and like, you know, if, if I called them and they didn't answer, it was like, right, you're getting a WhatsApp text. I need you between 2 and 5 p.m. for this window that we've got. So, yeah. <laughs> um, we, so when we measured pain, so we measured during the exercise about 24 hours after, and essentially in that acute study, we found that pain in between each set was lower in the BFR group. And initially, we put that down to whether well, they're lifting lower loads. They're lifting 30% monorem versus 70. That, that kind of makes sense. You know, the knees mm-hmm. are aggy and angry after the surgery. So, that makes sense. And then at 24 hours after, patients were reporting lower pain um, after having BFR training. So those patients in the BFR group reported less pain 24 hours after. I thought, okay, that's, that's quite interesting. So then when we did the, the, the training study, um, as I said, we, we measured pain with the COOS um, subscale, and we found that overall, and there's a 67% reduction compared to 39 with heavy load. So like, you know, almost double reduction with BFR. And when we looked at our kind of feasibility type data, so we did the same measurements as the acute study throughout every training session. So we measured pain um, in between the sets about 24 hours after every session. So that's, that's detailed in our feasibility paper in physical therapy and sport where it's published. And essentially um, they were reported, the BFR group reported less pain at 24 hours post the whole way through. Um, I think it was by session four, I think it was significantly lower than baseline and it's remained lower for the, for the remaining 12 sessions because they had 60 in total. So that's when we started thinking, hang on, there's, there's something really, there's something happening with the pain here. It's, maybe it isn't just to do with load. And around that time was when um, Vasily Krakis paper came out, uh, the two mm-hmm. papers, Aspita. So they had the, the pilot RCT and the, um, and the follow-up. <clears throat> and that's, to date, those, those are my two favorite BFR papers because... And it was a really nice, simple study, and, and they essentially took those patients with or individuals with anterior knee pain and just got them to do low load training or the same protocol with BFR. And I think, if I remember correctly, they did four sets of open connected chain exercise, yep. like yep. stuff. Thirty percent one RM. I think I can't remember what pressure they used, but I'm pretty sure it was a high LP pressure. Um, and essentially, just they measured pain pre and post, so like a numerical pain rating scale, so nice and simple. Um, and they found that the BFR group reported a greater reduction in pain immediately after. So it was within the first minute of after completing exercise. And then the really interesting part was when they did the 45 minute physiotherapy session after, and then they reassessed pain in, I think it was the sh- uh, shallow and deep single leg squat and then the step down test. And they found that there was uh, the patients who had had the BFR uh, acute intervention reported less pain uh, for, in those movements 45 minutes later. So that's when I really thought, okay, well, they've, they've shown acute hypoalgesia here and not only immediately yeah. but through a session and they kind of reported anecdotally that the patients could tolerate more load uh, in, in that physiotherapy session. And then that's when I thought, hang on, this, this has some you know, really important potential implications for, for rehab. So that's when we kind of thought, okay, how is this happening? And, you know, what's driving it? And is it just for 45 minutes? Because we've seen less pain at 24 hours. So that's when mm-hmm. I thought it could be a really big, 
uh, a really big thing to look at there. So we then went away uh, and then I was learning about exercise-induced hypoalgesia, so, um, which obviously is, is a well-described phenomenon where exercise reduces pain acutely. Um, and kind of more the reading and things I was learning about it was that it's driven by the intensity and duration of the exercise. So the higher the intensity of the exercise and the longer the duration, like resistance and aerobic type stuff, the greater the acute reduction in pain. Um, so then I was thinking, okay, um, we're getting this reduction with BFI. It's low intensity and it's short duration. So like an acute session of four sets is what, what five to six minutes. So it's, it's, it's not long duration uh, and it's, you know, it's low intensity. So started reading around the different mechanisms that are driving or, or hypothesized to drive uh, hypoalgesia uh, with normal exercise uh, and kind of then figuring out how BFR, coming up with hypotheses about how BFR may be achieving that. Um, so looking at those pathways. Um, so we put that into a hypothesis paper, which um, was really cool to do because when we started writing it, it started really seeing the links. And it seemed quite obvious about how our BFR could be having this effect. Um, and then that's when we decided to follow that up with a, with a, you know, a robust kind of randomized control study. Nice. And, and so do you want to kind of go in what the objectives or what you found in that study and then maybe even discuss some of your, if you want to, some of your future work of what you're looking at right now with that? Yeah, sure. So essentially when we, when we kind of, um, were putting up together hypothesis, there was there's several different mechanisms that are proposed to have opposed to drive exercise induced hypoalgesia. Uh, and kind of the consensus on that type of literature was that there's no one driving factor. There's multiple mechanisms at play that have a kind of synergistic effect. So we came up with our hypothesis and then we decided to test a couple of them uh, in the study. So what I really wanted to do was compare um, BFR exercise to, to the same exercise at a low intensity well, without BFR. So kind of like the um, Krakus and the Espitar guys did. So they compared mm -hmm. the same and the only difference was BFR. Then I also wanted to compare to a heavy load um, session because because of what we had in the PhD, where we found a greater reduction over training with BFR as opposed to heavy loading. Um, and then also kind of decided so should we should we kind of look if there's an, an effect of pressure specifically? So we'll we'll pick a, lo a low end pressure and a high end pressure. So we went with forty percent LOP and eighty percent LOP. So in the lower extremity. Yeah, in the lower extremity. So essentially, the study was uh, a lower limb loading protocol, so unilateral leg press, because we just apparently we love that over here in, in London. That's what we <laughs> I just realized that. I was like, damn, I need to do some upper body stuff. Yeah. No, Jer Jeremy does enough of that. We're good. You, yeah, yeah. You, you can stick to luxury. He's got a mouth. So we had the a low intensity um, protocol, the same exercise with 40% LOP, same with 80% LOP, and then a high intensity group. And essentially, we recruited um, just non-injured recreation active individuals who are, who are pain-free. And we wanted to look at uh, acute hypoalgesia. So essentially, it was a randomized crossover trial. So all the individuals took part in all conditions. Uh, and we, we started doing more and more of those studies. And I like those. I think they're the most robust kind of studies because you know, if you're seeing an effect of one intervention, then you can be confident it's because of the intervention, not because of a certain group of individuals or, or maybe a learned effect. So we... Um, they all did it in a randomized crossover uh, design. And essentially, um, the way we measured hypoalgesia was using algometry. So there's various different ways the literature has kind of looked at acute hypoalgesia with exercise, but we chose handheld algometry for, for several reasons. And essentially it involves using this little, um, it's kind of like tool, it looks like a theragun, but not as cool. And essentially um, you put pressure on various trigger points throughout the body. So a lot of the, the Danish groups have done um, 
they kind of the leaders in pain research. So we kind of took their protocol. Um, so we measured, we wanted to measure hypoalgesia in, in the exercise and limb, but they'd also shown a lot of evidence of systemic hypoalgesia. So around other areas of the body that aren't exercising. So I wanted to include that because I figured, you know, that could have important implications for rehab uh, for someone who has an injured, in, injured limb that can't be trained. Like thinking back your background, Johnny, with some of those blast patients uh, injuries, we potentially train another limb and get hypoalgesia affected in the injured limb. So we essentially got them to do uh, exercise. So we just did the 75 rep protocol for the BFR group. And then the heavy load group did um, four sets of 10. And we essentially, we mo I modified the um, rest period for the, uh, the heavy load intervention so that the interventions were the same time because we controlled contraction speed. So they ended at the same time because that was really important for making sure we standardized the time where we measured uh, hypoalgesia post-exercise. And essentially all it involved is applying pressure on these trigger points in the body. So we, we did the, um, the quads and the exercise in them. We did the non-dominant quads or the non-exercising quads. We did the dominant bicep in the upper body and then we did the non-dominant trapezius. So that again, we kind of just mimicked the protocol that was done in the pain literature to see how BFR kind of would compare. And you just put pressure on these trigger points with the algometer and you get a reading um, in kilograms of force, which is what we used. And essentially, you apply the stimulus uh, and you just instruct the individual, say now when it goes from discomfort to pain, so the first onset of pain. Um, and then you just measure that pre and post. Uh, and when we when I read this literature, I was quite skeptical thinking, you know, it's got to be a lot of variation in that. Yeah. Uh, there was some literature published on the reliability and stuff. So we did a lot of pilot testing. And yeah, I was amazed at how, how accurate it was from day to day in these individuals uh, and also how accurate it was uh, and reliable at documenting the change and the magnitude of change. So then we did the, we did the study and um, we wanted to look at some mechanisms. So we, um, we took blood samples and we wanted to look at um, the endogenous op opioid and endocannabinoid systems. So one of our hypotheses was that these endogenous pain modulation systems were involved in hypogesia with BFR. Um, so these kind of systems are activated um, during ex exercise, typically uh, like specifically painful exercise uh, or strenuous exercise. And, and we know BFR can cause quite a bit of discomfort in that muscle. So we wanted to start with that as our main hypothesis. So we took blood samples pre and post to, to look at that. And we did all our measures pre, post, and then 24 hours post. Um, and essentially what we found is that in the exercise and limb, we saw pain thresholds, the amount of the amount of pressure that we, we applied before the person found it painful increased pre to post exercise, which is what we'd expect. Um, so if we compare the, the low intensity and the high intensity group, the, the change was greater in the high intensity uh, intervention as a, or the session compared to the low intensity, which we'd expect based on what we know about exercise induced hypogesia. And then in the BFR groups, um, so the 40% LLP and 80% LLP resulted in a greater change or a greater hypogesia effect compared to the low intensity exercise alone. So I was kind of like, okay, we know it's to do with the BFR now. Uh, and actually we saw a greater uh, effect with 80% LOP, which kind of suggested to us potentially you know, the pressure is an important variable for this. And that was in that limb that was exercising. So um, that was really cool. And the 80% LOP actually um, caused a greater reduction in pain threshold or pain sensitivity compared to the high intensity group. So that basically confirmed what we'd seen in the ACL study and what others have seen. Uh, high pressure, 80% LLP, VFR was causing greater pain reduction. So 
we can't systemically as well, or I can't remember just in a quad. So that was in the exercise and limb. So forty percent LOP produced a similar change as, as high intensity, and eighty percent was greater in the exercise and limb. All four of the of the protocols resulted in systemic hypoalgesia. So we saw a change in the non-exercise and limb, which was the magnitude was smaller than the exercise and limb. And again, we saw a smaller change in the dominant biceps and the non-dominant trapezius or upper body. And um, those other three remote sites that weren't exercising, there was no difference in pressure. So the, the, the level of pressure didn't affect the change, but 40% and 80% LLP produced similar hypogesias, high intensity exercise. But obviously yeah. 30% of one rep max as opposed to, to 70. So- um, And then endogenously, what did you see? So in terms of our, um, in terms of our markers, so we'll just add to that. The, the, the interesting finding was the 24 hour post. That and that's still one we can't explain because um, at 24 hours post, we any change in pain sensitivity, which was our marker of hypoalgesia. So in the low intensity protocol and the high intensity protocol, when the individuals did those, at 24 hours post, all those pain thresholds had gone back to baseline, which we'd expect because with exercise induced hypoalgesia, typically it's 45 minutes to an hour you see the effect. When we assessed the individuals after they did both the BFI interventions, in that exercise and limb, pain thresholds were still elevated. And it was only in that limb. So their non-exercising limb and their remote upper body areas had gone back to baseline, but the exercising limb was still higher. So that was really interesting. And again, at that time point, the 80% LP seemed to have a greater effect. So that was really interesting because it kind of, uh, again, supported what we'd seen in the ACL study and um, with the 24-hour post measures. Um, but yeah, so in terms of the endogenous stuff to kind of put a mechanism beneath those changes. So we looked at beta endorphin as a marker of the opioid uh, system. And we looked at 2AG, which is a marker of the endocannabinoid system. And essentially research has shown in animals and humans that when we exercise, these are released from cells around the body and that they bind to pre and postsynaptic terminals in the peripheral spinal, supraspinal pathways and, and basically contribute to pain inhibition. So we measured beta endorphin and 2AG and we hypothesized both would increase um, because their increase in response to exercise, particularly exercise that's uncomfortable. Um, in terms of 2AG, we saw absolutely no change whatsoever. So we, we binned that hypothesis because there was no changes from pre to post in any of the, of the conditions. But the beta endorphin, yeah, so that was, that was, that was, that was some boring analysis. But the, uh, the beta endorphin was interesting. So again, we saw, um, we saw an increase uh, in the high intensity group. Um, slight increase and then the bfr group there was a, a way bigger increase i think it was like 27 percent change from baseline in the 40 percent lp group and like a 35 33 35 in the 80 percent lp group so we were seeing beta endorphin was increasing um as a result of the exercise um so that was that was the endogenous findings and, you, and that marker was only measured at the acute post-exercise you weren't able to catch that at 24 hours no, so that was no. We did we did measure at twenty four hours. Sorry, so we did it at, at oh, okay. 10, 10 minutes post, which showed us the increase. And then at twenty four hours, um, those levels have gone back down to normal. So, okay, use that bit of a mystery for that twenty four hour elevation. It's like, well, the beta endorphin's gone back down, so it can't be the only thing contributing to um, the hypogesia. Um, but obviously, it seemed to have an effect because we did like a mediation analysis, which uh, allowed you to work out the magnitude of change in pain sensitivity. And the magnitude of change in beta endorphin in each individual and work out how much it influences that. And I think it explained the change in beta endorphin endogenously explained about 54% of the, of the relationship between the exercise protocol and the change in 
pain sensitivity. So again, it shows that beta endorphin has some role, but it's not the only thing that's contributing to, to this hypoalgesia. And, and that's kind of makes sense because from the normal literature, um, non-BFR stuff with hypoalgesia, that's what it suggests as well. You know, I, I just wondered though, can you, is it hard to pick up beta endorphin um, or those endogenous opioids at the 24 hour tide point? Or are they already bound to receptors and, and you're not getting it from your draw? Um, uh, potentially, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, I could, but I think at the, if we look at the 24 hour measures, they were similar to baseline. So our pre-exercise kind of, kind of measures. So I think just at that point, there was just, there was no simulation. It was, it was more the, the resting endogenous levels they were back at. Um, so, so yeah, I just, that was, I just want beta endorphin to work. Cause I've already made the slides for that one. Um, prior to your study, that was, that was where <laughs> I was going. <laughs> yeah. Don't eat too ag because that. Oh, wait. Yeah, I, I didn't even go there. I, well, I, because when I speak at conferences, I can't say endocannabinoid. I, I can barely say it right now. So, yeah, that's why I call it two yeah. ag. The actual name. AG, is like, yeah. You got to go glycerol, and then the first conference I presented that paper, I just looked at it and went, "You know what? No, we'll call it two ag because I'm not going to You guys get with this. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to hooked on phonics that word yesterday when I was reading your paper, and I'm like, I I don't even know. I can't even get there. There's too many. It's that impossible to yeah. get out. I've, I've tried to say it and speak in conferences. It's impossible. It well, what do you think then, man? Um, mechanism wise, 24 hours right now, your gut. <clears throat> part of me, um, the pessimist in me, part of me thinks potentially it might be the individual's um, own perception. Mm -hmm. So what we've seen in individuals in our studies doing BFR and what when, we, when I followed up with the patients after when I'd been unblinded in the ACL stuff was that they said how great they felt after i'm wondering if you know maybe that there's a yes. sensory change where they think oh, i feel good so they're less their pain thresholds are different but i think there potentially is some kind of change to um like neural pathways so the next step is to, is to look into using tms so to measure what's happening i think jill cooks some, some of the isometric stuff they've done they've looked at um yes. like changes and, and they've shown changes with isometric based stuff so um for me, I think that probably would be, that's where I think would be the big driver at 24 hours. And Luke, I'm not as familiar with the other, you know, exercise induced hypoalgesia research. What is a typical time frame that you see, you know, hypoalgesia after exercise, if it's enough to create hypoalgesia? So yeah, typically um, based on kind of like reviews, recent reviews of all the exercise hypoalgesia stuff, it's about anywhere between 45 and 60 minutes. So, which is great um, because obviously that allows you to do so much more with, with, with a patient um, or just gives them that relief when, when they're going home. Um, but I think, you know, with BFI, we're having an effect at 24 hours. And I think you know, we showed it in the acute uh, ACL study to an extent. We showed it in the training study and then we've shown it in, in you know, non-injured non individuals who, who are pain-free. Um, so, that, you know, it's not just having an effect on existing pain. It's, it's, it's their resting pain sensitivity we, we were changing. So. I think the 24 hour thing has so many implications. Like the idea of the, the, the interesting thing for me with the acute hypoalgesia is the potential for, for rehab in certain conditions. So like the tendinopathy thing always comes up when I mention hypoalgesia would be a far. Yep. So tendons require high, high load um, in order to, to adapt and rehab. So, you know, would be a far potentially work for tendons. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, but, but do they? <laughs> yeah, oh, maybe. Oh, oh, let's not go there. Let's not go there. This is a whole nother conversation. Uh, <laughs> But the, the, the idea is that, you know, if we can, uh, and the Caracasis work showed this really nicely, or they can re reduce pain and individuals could tolerate more load. 
So I think from a rehab perspective, you know, if we could do a quick acute for the individuals you needed to load um, for, you know, different um, conditions and, you know, as a clinician, uh, you guys will know more about that than me. But if you can acutely reduce pain with five or six minutes of, of four sets of BFI exercise, and, you know, that could improve subsequent rehab stuff. And, and the 24-hour stuff, I think, is great because you can't see patients every day, as we've, as we've discussed, unless they're in the bed rest yeah. of the well and trapped. But well, in the in the Coracus guys, Aspatar, they, you know, they even mentioned that paper. It, this should be looked at as a preconditioning exercise. So, if you're going to program, and we've talked about it, put it first in your session. And so, um, luckily, that's kind of the way we were doing it before we went deep into pain, because it was more like, well, let's get them fatigued if you're going to work on proprioception and things like that. But, but, it, but I believe it. It's it is a it is. It, it happens, <laughs> you know, it's the reason why we're all going down this road. We've all seen it. And I've always said our first, that post-op arthroscopy paper, that was our first goal was just to see where we caused any more pain um, and, and their coups went down and, and had less pain as well. So not only clinically, you know, this is a big thing with all the teams we work with. Um, the playoffs, you got an NBA guy, he's got this nagging, you know, patellar tendinopathy type thing, not bad enough that he can't play, but he wants to get some relief. So they're using this pregame um, to get 45 to 60 minutes at least. But then we get this anecdotal say, hey, he still felt like he was getting some relief the next day or two. We get that so much. Their question is always a concern with fatigue. You know, we want to time this to get the biggest bang for their buck, but we don't want to wear their leg out by doing BFR right before a game just for analgesic benefit. Could we do one set or two sets keep the cuff on maybe just hold maybe is there something driving that from from the hypoxic event you know we've seen the few studies that have looked at pre-surgical doing ischemic preconditioning and getting this kind of reduced opioid use and, and reduced pain scores so you know is it could it be hypoxia and not exercise would be interesting to see as well definitely and we're currently we're halfway through replicating that same study but with aerobic exercise so pretty yeah. much the same design so the randomized controlled crossover um, same pressures, but it's just basically an aerobic exercise protocol. So we, um, we're doing 20 minutes of low intensity aerobic silence. So 40% VO2 max and basing it on uh, one of, uh, Lonerke's papers where they looked at adaptations to low intensity aerobic exercise of BFR versus high intensity. I think it was a six week study. So we kind of took that protocol because it's been shown to be effective at improving muscle mass and strength. Um, so we're like, what, what potentially could that protocol do for pain? So, uh, we're halfway through that and it's obviously on, on hold at the moment for obvious reasons, but um, that's going to be really interesting as well, because if, if we can have the same kind of effect with aerobic exercise, it provides an additional option for, for patients. You may not even be able to load yet with, with weight resistance. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Next would be question. stem. Um, you know, there's a million, yeah. you know, let's see what it does with stem okay. next and then just see with just still swelling. Yeah. Sorry, Kyle. No, that's okay. Uh, Luke, I, ha I had a question um, in part because we get this a lot. And then I thought it was kind of interesting reading through you and Steven's hypothesis paper. Um, one of the, one of the papers that you all reviewed looked like it was looking at exercise induced hypoalgesia in like a chronic pain type situation. And it seemed as though in that situation that there may not be an effect. Um, and so wondered if you could maybe expound on that a bit. And then ultimately kind of the question on our end on the, on the clinic side is, well, what about that person that has like a CRPS? Um, we've gotten that question a lot. I know we've also kind of posed it to Johnny cause they certainly saw a lot of that within the DOD. So is there potential to use this in, in, in a CRPS 
type scenario? Uh, do we think maybe it doesn't work in chronic pain for some weird reason? What, what kind of thoughts do you have? You know, do you know what CRPS is? Like everyone has different yeah, terms sorry. for it now. That was my first question. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. So it used to be RSD reflex sympathetic yeah. dystrophy. Now you have CRPS one, CRPS two. So complex regional pain syndrome one or two one generally involves uh direct injury to a nerve and then two tends to be kind of like um a, a different sort of etiology if you will. can't even explain it half the time yeah yeah <laughs> uh yeah so it's essentially that, that's kind of the next step i think um looking at the exercise induced hypogesia literature a lot of the um a lot of studies have shown exercise causes hyperalgesia in some individuals with chronic pain um, so I think the next step is, is basically to replicate what we did, but do it, um, in individuals with, with chronic pain and see. Yeah. I also that. noted something from your, your, uh, paper here. I wanted to make sure I got this right. I'm just going to quote a sentence for you here. If I can get it right. Oh, where'd it go? Oh, here it is. So in that hypothesis paper, it said the following Sections provide an overview of the, no, 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 that's the wrong one. Uh, it serves as an agonist for opioid receptors throughout the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system, particularly of the mu subtype. So when I read that, I thought, oh, mu, um, now we're talking barbecue. Um, and so <laughs> I just needed a way to bring this back to, How long to barbecue the mu. <laughs> No, I didn't work at all. I, I read that immediately. I'm like, oh, I got to ask Luke about that. It's a perfect way to work barbecue in the conversation tomorrow. Uh, I'd never heard of the Moo receptor. Um, and, and so anyway, I don't know if you want to expound on that straight, but I was mostly just trying to work barbecue into the conversation. I don't even know what your question is now. What's the <laughs> it really wasn't is that <laughs> we'll wrap this one up quickly, but yeah, essentially, um, I had no idea there was loads of these different types of receptors. Um, for these different endogenous systems. And I read this complex paper on the uh, opioid endogenous systems and the different types of receptors and, and different opioids, because beta endorphin is just one example, that have higher affinity to different types of receptors. So yeah, that, that was my way of, as you would say, Carl, spicing up the paper, making it sound so you, you can supplement your pain relieving BFR exercise with some brisket. Yeah, brisket. What I what I understand. Okay, all right. So we've got that, that. That's my interpretation. So it, it kill, in Austin, Texas, we know brisket kills coronavirus. We've established that, uh, and now we know <laughs> it's going to help your pain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Luke, I'd be really interested to see. You know, I know obviously, I think I'm sure you guys are probably going to go down this road of the the passive BFR um, with those papers. You know, the pre-surgical papers, because um, based on their protocol, it seems like you know they're kind of, they should be under Versed already. I mean, it's like right before surgery. So there probably isn't as much of a condition pain modulation fitting in there because they probably aren't really feeling it. Um, you know, maybe more of that, that pressure change or the baroreceptor type mechanism fitting in there. But I, I'm be curious to see how that compares to, you know, an exercise application with the tourniquet. Yeah. So the, the condition pain modulation, I find that really interesting. Um, you know, and exercise acting as obnoxious stimulus to reduce uh, the pain itself of, of the injury. Um, and we, we included, so we had measures of discomfort, which obviously isn't the most robust measure um, for that. We had our measures of discomfort on, and that mediation analysis I mentioned where we did beta endorphin and, and the change in sensitivity. We also looked at um, a relationship between discomfort and 
changing the scrum pattern, changing thresholds based on that. And it suggested that again, there was, it was an influence. So essentially there is that, particularly if um, a higher percentage of LLP is, is causing greater hypoalgesia. Uh, but again, it's probably just one in, one in several. So um, the hope is that in some way we can, not for the aerobic stuff that we have already going, but if we can get me trained on the, on the TMS stuff, we can then maybe dig deeper into what's happening in those neural pathways. Plus TMS is cool. You get to shot people in the head with a, with a, with a big hat on. So who doesn't want to do that? I don't want to do that. But you can <laughs> for your first ever visit to the UK. And yeah, well, you can shock me in the TMS. You've got less interference. I got there good, between I got, the, the I shock good and contact. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can get good purchase on my head. No problem. So Luke, any future projects you want to highlight? Um, yeah, so um, we're kind of um, we're going to kind of stay on the pain route for now. So we've got the aerobic one going. Um, we're going to look at doing an IPC type one as well to look at um, hypoalgesia with that. So we have like that kind of passive protocol. Um, the idea is to then start putting it in um, patients. So getting individuals in. Um, we've we've already kind of made movements with this. So getting people in and doing a, an acute uh, BFR protocol with eighty percent LLP. Um, and then kind of following a similar type design to the Caracas stuff where get them to do a session after measuring pain during it at the end and then at 24 hours later. And I think the 24 hours is something we're going to push and probably include in all the studies because I think, you know, that that's massive. We've seen that with, with different types of BFR exercise. That's great. So there's kind of, there's kind of that avenue. And um, we're going to dig more into the mechanisms. So that'll involve more studies like, like the one we've discussed today, the resistance exercise one, that type protocol, but then, using the TMS, taking other blood measures, um, looking at different opioid markers, different endocannabinoid markers, looking at um, blood pressure and things like that, and trying to dig out and tease out those other mechanisms and, and really include um, you know, pressure. So is pressure having an effect? Because I think that's really important. We're not just interested in our work, and it's like what pressure is optimal for this because we, we want to make it optimal if we're going to do it. Um, that's that's kind of the way we're going with the pain stuff, and then we've, we've trying to set up some more clinical stuff on the side and myself and Steven have got a couple PhD students. They have Paul Head who's doing the BFR and electrical stimulation stuff. Yeah. Uh, a couple of new potential students looking at um, lower back pain in BFR. So we've just had a, a master's degree student do a nice on BFR and lower back pain. So that's really interesting. So the idea is to see if we can kind of, kind of follow that up and, and the, the systemic hypogesia is kind of, I'm really interested in that, not to give like ideas away, but I'm really interested in like an upper versus lower body. So, you know, by, by training an upper limb, do we get a reduction in pain in the, in the lower limb? We've essentially shown that in, in, in the first study. Um, but then also, so now go, okay, well, in someone who actually has pain in the knee or the foot or whatever, if we train an arm, do they get a reduction in pain in that? And what are the mechanisms with that? So that, I think that's kind of, I think the important thing now is I'm just trying to understand how it worked. And that, that's kind of the way the BFR literature went initially with strength and hypertrophy. Oh, well, the muscle's getting bigger and it's getting stronger. And then after a while, people are like, okay, how's this working? So I think that's kind of where we're at now. Nice, man. And, and you're also looking at outer space. Yes, that, that's, kind of, <laughs> yeah, that's, my, uh, that's my main kind of topic. I'm a space nerd, have been since I was a kid. So my dream of being an astronaut still might be slightly alive, but minus being a pilot and an engineer and all that. So. <laughs> but, um, I'll see if I can get a hold of Elon Musk for you. Um, he might be able to hook you up. Yeah. I, I ain't getting on your rocket ship, Luke. Sorry, man. 
<laughs> the goal is to have a beautiful device floating in space. That, that's the yeah, goal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, man, Luke, you're crushing it, brother. Um, you're changing the clinical practice and, and putting out some amazing work. So it's fun watching all this happen and um, trying to keep up with you now. You're, you're speaking at more conferences than, than I do, which is fine. You can have all of mine. Um, <laughs> I um, that's, yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, and you've got uh, you're teaching some BFR courses at, with the Ability Group in Italy coming up. I think those are all sold out. Um, yeah, they're, they're completely sold out for yeah. two in two in, yeah. two in November. Um, and then, then, then you have some courses in London as well. Um, yeah, we have so. courses in London. Um, next one in August, and then we're in November. Um, so just really hoping that those things pick up back now. I think one of the previous twenty four. Yeah. So that was it's good. The more people, the better on those things. So yeah, um, yeah. The world's slowly getting back out. Well, well, fellas, you got anything last parting words or or ragging on Luke for anything? Uh, I know you guys always got your jokes. Good. I'll save I'm some good. of those for another time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Look All forward right. to getting getting to uh, hang out again soon. Luke, that's awesome, man. Thanks for coming on. Great stuff. I, this is a lot of people are getting a lot of information from this. So yeah. appreciate you, brother. Thank Thanks. you, Luke. That was fun. All right. Say hi to London and the jury weather and Stephen Patterson for us. I will do. Hey, um, I got a question, Luke. Wait, before we leave, did Stephen ever drink the Welsh whiskey? You got him? No, he didn't. Did he ever hear? No, I, I don't. So, and I hope he's listening. He's going to listen to this. I'm going to send yeah. it to him. Yeah. That send was oh, the, my other supervisor's post PhD. Like, oh, this is a really nice gift. And yeah. uh, he's like, I'm not drinking that. What's that? Just <laughs> like. Because then, and then we came to Washington, didn't we? The day after my, yeah. my invite, yeah. so I'm already feeling a little bit delicate uh, that day after being in the pub. So <laughs> flight, and then uh, we'll meet you guys, and we go for a drink. And it's the first thing he brings up, and, and you know, two minutes in, and I'm getting laid in. I was like, <laughs> I'm going back to Stephen. Stephen can only hang with beer; he can't handle the hard stuff anyway. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, he's our new week sauce. I remember. Him. Even doing he, 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 when he when he moved back to Belfast, he, he definitely can't handle that course. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's too funny. <laughs> too funny. Got the weak gene. All right, fellas. Thanks. Thanks again, Luke. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.